Let's pray. Holy God, we uh, bow before you. We praise you. Uh, you are so gracious. You've given us so many things. Uh, nothing that we deserve. Uh, pray that as we uh, study your word this morning, that uh, everything I say will be correct, and that your spirit will soften hearts and use it, and uh, my feeble attempts will honor you. Christ, I pray. Amen. When uh, Pastor Adam said he was going to uh, be out with the baby, he says you can either do the first half, like a good salesman actually, you can either do the first half or the last half of Romans. It was an either or, there wasn't none. And uh, so I read it really quickly and I said, well, I think I'll do the first half because it seems a lot easier. Um, because I had, I just went through a Bible study fellowship and their study of Romans, so I thought, well, I have those notes. I do have a, a commentary by uh, R.C. Sproul on Romans, and uh, I'm thinking, well, I can probably do this. But then I read the first 11 verses, the first half of Romans. I go, oh, my goodness, I panic. What am I going to say about that? I'm thinking there's about five minutes worth. Um, so then I got... Uh, nervous. I went to Amazon. I ordered Dr. Boyce's commentary on Romans. And he, what, what Paul says in, well, I don't know, 30 chapters or something, Boyce has four volumes on Romans. And then I read a uh, book on suffering by Tim Keller, Pastor Keller, and now I have a new dilemma. And that is, there's four sermons, literally there are four sermons in the first three verses of Romans chapter 5. You could talk about justification. We talked about in kids' group. We could talk about peace with God. We could talk about access to God. We could talk about joy with God. So how do you, how do you handle that? Uh, so I hope you cleared your, your afternoon because we're going to be here a long time. Uh, it's kind of like when I, when I go to that little-known treasure in Auburn, the Paradise Buffet. Do I fill up on the fried shrimp, which is my favorite, or you take a little morsel of everything, you know, some, some General Tao's chicken, do you, do you do some fried rice, do you do the grill, do you do the dessert bar, the salad bar? Where do you stop? Where do you start? Um, so we are going to talk about a little of everything today. Um, the fruits of justification that Paul talks about, I just said, are uh, peace, access, and joy. And then we're going to talk a little bit more about justification because if I studied that, it, 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 uh, um, I came to a deeper understanding, I think, about what that really means. All right, so in verse 1, if you want to follow along, Romans chapter 5, Paul's writing, Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul says, therefore, because he's just spent the first four chapters of Romans talking about our sin. We've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, and he's explaining the gospel to all of us. Uh, in chapter 5, he changes his message, and now he's just speaking to the believers. These are the Christians. And I think we tend to think, at least I do, of justification 
as primarily forgiveness. And in the heart of Reformation was uh, God is pardoning sinners and accepting them as righteous for Christ's sake. And as I talked about earlier with the children, and it is a legal status, uh, it's immediate adoption. It's the con conferral of son status, if you will, but it, it's not a gradual change of nature, but it's a sudden change, a sudden change in legal status. God has accepted us not because of anything we've done, our works, our resumes, um, our deeds, but because of Christ's perfect record. In the blink of an eye, we go from being a sinner to being viewed as perfect. So if someone would walk into Centurion where I work and apply for a job and I happen to be seeing that resume, what I typically say is, okay, based on their past performance, I can somehow believe if they're being successful that they'll be successful when they work for us. Um, but that guy still has to perform every day. Uh, no matter how stellar his past record. Matter of fact, our owner uh, is, is kind of fond of saying, I've heard him say this a dozen times, uh, someone says, well, you have a job description there, and, and uh, Kenny says, that's our owner, work or get fired. That's his answer. Uh, the gospel, though, is completely different than that. Uh, it's a unique approach, a completely different approach, because we receive a divine righteousness. We receive a perfect record from God. It's not based on what we do or what we've done or what we continue to do. Uh, Romans 3.24 tells us it's a gift. It's offered to us. We are now accepted. Again, not based on anything I've done or I will do or anything I bring, but only because of what Christ has already done. And it's not just that we're accepted, but we're treated as sons. Justified is much more than being forgiven. We are viewed as perfect. And I typically think of forgiveness as being free from punishment or free from liability. Uh, an earthly judge in an earthly courtroom may say all charges are dropped. You're innocent. You escape hard time, whatever. Um, but justification is actually the granting of a status with all the associated rights and, and privileges and perks uh, that we receive with sonship. It's infinitely more than forgiveness. It's the righteousness of Jesus. His perfect record is now viewed as ours. Do I still sin? Yes, of course. Uh, but when I do, God no longer views me as bad. My sin is no longer brings me into condemnation. Paul says there is therefore now no condemnation. As Christians, we live as justified men and women, but we still sin. In that sense, as the commentators say, we are righteous sinners. We are honored failures. So you're saying, Lord, I know that already. Uh, so what? Um, I think this understanding, at least it impacted me, I think it changed maybe, changes how we live as a Christian. Um, what is legalism? To me, simply, it's, it's defined as a sinner trying to become righteous through his works and working our way to heaven. So to me, then, legalism results in us living like a Pharisee, 
um, trying to keep outwardly rules. We become proud. We think we're better than someone else. We say, thank goodness I'm not like that guy. Um, we strive to become what we already are, what I already have, justification. God imputes Christ's righteousness to me. I can quit striving. God already viewed this as perfect. Growing up in that little country church in Kansas, I saw legalism everywhere. I, I guess I probably didn't understand it as such, but let me give you an example. My Uncle Maynard, he drove a truck from South Hutchinson, Kansas, twice a week to Golden, Colorado. Now, what's in Golden, Colorado? Beer, yeah. And I, in our church, in that little Mennonite church, that disqualified Uncle Maynard from church leadership. It uh, disqualified him from teaching. Uh, I heard people whisper and talk about uh, how wrong that was. Uh, talked about him with disdain. I don't know, maybe Uncle Maynard even listened to rock and roll music when he's driving. I, I don't know. He was a wild one. I never saw him drink a drop of alcohol in his life. Um, like the folks at that church think that not driving a beer truck would somehow make Christ's gift of justification a little better. Made him more justified. They still seem to accept his tithe, though, I noticed. Uh, at that moment of belief, God views us as righteous. We can live freely. Now, we can take the other extreme, thinking that living freely means we are now titled, entitled to live you know, however we want, that I'm forgiven, God loves me, I'm wonderful, anything goes. Um, and that's not quite right either. John MacArthur, Pastor John MacArthur says, all churches are built on sound doctrine and love. Too much sound doctrine and not enough love, and you get legalism, like Uncle Maynard did. Too much love and not enough sound doctrine, and you have a chaos. Um, and I think that not only applies to churches, but it also applies to ourselves. We have to live, we have to see ourselves as both loved and as a sinner. As both loved and a sinner. It, it, it strikes me that we're walking down a balanced beam of the gospel. And when I fall off and, and goes flat, I hit the ground, uh, those are the times I either think of myself as only a worthless sinner and forget how much God loves me. Or I think of how loved I am, how accepted I am, how forgiven I am, and I forget how truly, truly sinful I really am. And that's probably the side at least I and most of us fall off of. Um, we can never forget that we are accepted, we're forgiven, we're justified, but still a sinner. And I think if we can keep that balance, we then have a healthy humbleness along with a confidence that that assurance brings us. That's justification. We really are righteous sinners. Now, as a result of that justification, notice that in verse 1, Paul tells us that we have peace with God. And it says peace with God, not the peace of God that we read about in Philippians 4. 
uh, verses 6 and 7. Um, that war in Syria we, we read about and hear about in the news is very bad. It's been going on for seven years, has killed a half a million people. Very bad war. But the war of Romans 5 is the end of the worst of all possible wars. We're repeatedly told in the Bible that the natural condition of man is enmity with God. We are told that we're children of wrath, and as such, God is at war with us. But he provided a way out. He provided peace. Uh, He removed that cause of enmity through Jesus' death on the cross. And we've received that on our side when we believe God and that righteousness of Christ is counted to us as our righteousness. Hallelujah. Cause of the warfare between you and God is gone forever. That's the peace is talking about in Romans 5. And we have that promise that nothing, nothing can ever separate us from God's love. And our salvation is secured forever. So as a result of justification, we have peace with God. Not a ceasefire, not a truce, but everlasting peace. Verse 2 Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So Paul now says, as a result of justification, we now have access. So how does this work? At the time of justification, as as, uh, we are all adopted, we become those full sons we talked about, we receive full sons, rights as sons and heirs we aren't hired hands we're not working for heaven able to be fired we are sons accepted adopted Uh, and that results in that deep deep security we just discussed the salvation that can never be lost but it also results in access Um, maddie and max are uh, my children in case you don't familiar with them have an access to me that no one else in this world does when they call me at work, whether I'm in the meeting or on the landline uh, or deep in thought, doesn't matter, I take their calls. Now, Stephanie can call, and if I'm pretty sure there is an emergency, I may finish my meeting, to be honest. <laughs> then I'll call her right back. <laughs> Pastor Avon may call, and I'll typically finish what I'm doing, uh, but Maddie and Max have immediate access. Now, why? Well, for one thing, they're my children, and that's how it works. Uh, And I know if they call me at work, it isn't to chit-chat. It's something, at least to them, that's very, very important. And if a terribly flawed and sinful dad like me um, can do that, how much more does our infinitely wise and just and loving God hear and listen to our prayers? Now, a couple of things about access. Uh, first thing the Bible tells us is it's direct. In the, in the temple, if you recall, there were multiple barriers to entry. Gentiles had to stop at the first wall, that first barrier. Jewish women could go past that. They had to spot, stop at the second wall. And Jewish men at the next wall. But there was still one barrier left, and that was that great 12-inch thick curtain. And it separated the holy place from the most holy place, a place that the high priest could go, only go into once a year. That was on Bon Kippur, the Day of Atonement. 
And tradition says that he did so trembling with a rope tied around his leg and bells on his cassock. So if he died, uh, the bells would ring when he fell over and he could be dragged out by the rope. No one could go in, not even to save the high priest's life. That's what tradition said. But on that day, on the cross, when the day was as dark as night, and the earth shook and graves opened up, and the veil of the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom, that's when the barriers of sin are removed. And we now have access to the very presence of God Almighty. Staggering when you think about that. The second thing is that our access is effective. Ephesians tells us that we can approach God confidently and with freedom. Now, confidence in what? Well, I, I think that confidence that he's going to hear us and that he's going to answer our prayers according to his wise and perfect will. We have access to the greatest king of our of all our dear heavenly father who jesus says we can approach intimately saying abba father being our daddy and we are his beloved sons and daughters justification provides us peace and justification provides us that access Verse 2 said, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. That's again our legal position in Christ. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now when Paul talks about hope, he's not talking about some pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking. Um, I hope uh, Michigan wins a national championship. Uh, he's referring to an absolute certainty, an assurance that something uh, of something that's not yet fully experienced. And so that's the third benefit of justification. It's joy. Paul says we can now rejoice. But I think we have to understand that joy is not happiness. And the distinction is that happiness is dependent of circumstances. My cancer is gone. Uh, I just got a raise at work. My kid graduated from college. Uh, these are all circumstances that make us happy. I think the easiest way to think of joy is consider that the opposite of joy isn't sadness, the opposite of joy is hopelessness. Hopelessness. And our joy is based on that assurance, that certainty of eternity with God. But Paul says, wait, there's more. And I think he's almost giddy when he's writing. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. What in the world is he talking about? Is there anything more unnatural than rejoicing in suffering? Now, he isn't saying, uh, don't break down, don't sob, you know, this isn't just put on a stiff upper lip, act like everything is okay, um, get on with life type of thing. I don't think that's what he's saying. Because when we read about Job, and when Chad read that account, Job was struck with every possible uh, human tragedy, uh, loss of family, wealth, uh, health, 
he tore his clothes and he sat in a, a dump and scratched his sores with a piece of broken pottery. But scripture says in all this, he didn't sin. He mourned, he grieved, but he didn't sin. As Christians, we experience grief. Uh, we're not immune from suffering at all. Matter of fact, we may have more suffering. I don't know. Uh, we're real people. We cry, we grieve. Uh, we don't suppress it. We don't act like it didn't happen. The verse also isn't saying that we rejoice for our suffering. I don't run into the house with a broken leg and say, you who, Steph, I uh, just broke my leg in three places. Isn't that great? Now, that'd be weird. It says we rejoice in our suffering. So how do we do that? And I think to get our arms around this, we have to understand grace. Now, hear me out on this. Follow me. If the foundation of my happiness is my things, my stuff, and suffering takes away all these earthly things, which by definition is suffering, my health, my wealth, my loved ones, then I'm going to grow sadder and sadder and madder and madder and bitter and more angry. How dare you, God? I earned that stuff. I worked hard for these things. They're all mine. A friend of mine at work would get very angry when you talked with him about God. He was very bitter because he had a disabled daughter who uh, uh, mentioned of God. He, could, he, he couldn't talk to him about that. But grace says, everything I have comes from God. It was from God that received life and health and food and clothing and, and love of other people and meaningful work, even our very next breath. Those are all from God. James 1.17 says, clearly, all good gifts come from God. When I was a little boy, my brother Kenny, he was in first grade and he died. And uh, I remember that vividly. I was about 18 months younger than him. And uh, I remember him being sick for it. It seemed like a while he wouldn't play with me. He was playing there in bed. And I remember one morning, Mom is on the phone at the doctor's office. And all of a sudden, they throw me in the car and Kenny in the car. And Dad drives faster than I've ever seen him drive. And we go out to the hospital. And... Uh, uh, he dies a couple days later. And I remember after Madison was born, being home one time and, and uh, a father myself now, uh, asking mom and dad, how did they do that? How could you get through uh, losing a child? Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't fathom that. And they said, well, God gave us two other little boys that we had to take care of. Um, my Parents who only had an eighth grade education um, understood grace. That everything we have is a gift from God. Everything I have is on loan from God. And so what happens then is suffering drives us deeper into that source of our joy. Deeper into God. Deeper into his love. And if you build your life on your things, and those define who we are, and suffering pulls us away from those earthly things, we're going to become bitter. Job understood this. He said in verse 21, that naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. 
He understood these earthly things were gifts, pure grace. These are pure grace from God. We started out this uh, talk with uh, justification. But if you're a little like me, I think we have sometimes a hard time believing that we really don't have to do something more, that Christ Jesus has really done it all for us. And likewise, I think when we go through suffering, sometimes we tend to think that, does God really love me? If he truly cared for us, would he really make me go through this? And at times then, do we really question that God loves us unconditionally? Deep inside, when bad things happen, do you question that? I think the key to understanding Romans 5.3 is the word knowing. It's the most important word in that verse. The knowledge that gives joy is the knowledge that God's love is so great and so deep and so high and so wide that he sent his only son to die on the cross for our sins. That's the ultimate love. Focus on that. And when in times of deep distress, we do, we do focus on what Jesus did on the cross. We persevere. We have that endurance, knowing that like Job, we will become great, molded into the image of his son through that suffering. That's the refiner's fire, the purifying process. This is the character that Paul is talking about. When Christ paid the ultimate price, as Pastor Tim Keller says, he suffered not so we wouldn't suffer, but so when we do, will we become like him? He suffered not so we wouldn't suffer, but so when we do, will we become like him? One final point from the book of Job. Did he ever know the reason for his suffering, that it was a part of some cosmic warfare? I don't think so. I read the whole book, and I don't think so. Uh, and I think likewise, it's not important that we know God's hidden purpose for our lives in a specific situation. God, if I could just understand why I could get through this time of trial. If you just tell me five years, ten years, fifteen years from now, what does this mean? What's, it gonna, what's the result? Why am I going through this? Well, that wouldn't be faith at all if I knew. God asks us to trust him, to trust his word. As believers, we can glory in our suffering because we can trust our faithful and infinitely wise and infinitely good God. Now, we cannot, will not know everything or maybe anything at all there is to know about a specific trial. And nor will we ever know all there is to know about suffering in general. But we know him. We know him. The source of our joy and the reason for our hope. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for these trials that you bring in their lives. As, as unnatural as that seems, because we know that that does produce that perseverance and that character, and we become more like your son. Uh, we praise you and we worship you, and uh, we uh, 
honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.